Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, it is good to be back with you. Uh, thank you for your generosity and uh, an unexpected time off as we're uh, dealing with some family matters. Uh, thank you for your grace and your kindness in that, and certainly thank you for your prayers as well. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here, and as I said, uh, it's been a few weeks since I've been able to worship with you, and I'm grateful to be back. Do want to make a quick note that uh, if you would like to give, uh, this is, of course, a time to make note of that. You're able to give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give, or you're able to give as your exit. Uh, please note that as you give, we don't do this simply just to say that this helps us pay the bills, though it certainly does. We're giving to support what God is doing. And I want you to know that for every dollar you give, 10% of it goes out to into the world, to proclaim the good news of a risen Savior to a lost and dying world. And so that sounds like it's not a significant thing, but trust that your funds, the money you provide, are being used to bring honor and glory to God's name, both here and afar. And so we're grateful for your generosity and your kindness. Now, as we move forward into our sermon, I have the joy of continuing with the, our study in the book of Acts. The title of our sermon today is The Cost of Discipleship. I've borrowed that title from uh, Reverend Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who is a, was a German pastor. And as we look at this, one of the things that uh, I hope we can understand as we look at this idea of discipleship is that following Jesus has a cost. Following Jesus requires something of us. It's been said that everything in the world that desires worship and honor and glory asks something of the worshiper. And that is still true in anything we find to worship, but particularly still with Jesus. That following Jesus requires us to give up something. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The Cost of Discipleship, what he was trying to articulate is a clear vision of what Jesus proclaimed when he said, Take up your cross and follow me, dying to yourself daily. That he's trying to make clear this argument, this idea, that if we're to follow Jesus, it will cost us something. Now, as we look at this passage today, we are uh, continuing the story that began just a few chapters earlier with Peter and John coming into the temple and healing a lame man. And then when the crowd is gathered around to see this man that they've known for 40 years who's been paralyzed stand and walk, the crowd gathers around and says, what could do this? How could this happen? And Peter and John, their answer is, the way this happens is because our Savior, Jesus Christ, sits on the throne even now. And He has power over life and death. And through Him, we have power to have eternal life and to change lives here. And so they proclaim this message. And as we saw last week with Pastor Brian continuing in chapter 4, this invites conflict. That this invites conflict with the temple authorities. And so as we recognize that we're going to follow Jesus, that it's going to cost us something, I would submit to you that in this world today, in the day and age that we live in, that following Jesus, the cost that we will pay as Christ followers is that we will live in a time of conflict and turmoil. That we as followers of Christ will actually be central to this conflict. That our lives will be marked by conflict with the world, with sin, with people who would assent that Jesus is not this man that is worthy of honor and glory. And so our cost, the cross that you and I will bear in the world today, is that we will be in conflict for trusting Jesus. 
Now, what does that look like? What kind of weight is that for us to bear? I think as we look at this passage today in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see that this weight that we're going to bear is going to require us to be in conflict, to be embroiled with religious authorities, to be in opposition to the world. As we look at this passage, I would ask that you guys stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We'll read a few short verses here. Beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 14. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. That in the midst of all the turmoil and difficulty and conflict that we find in this world, you are still good and you are still seated on the throne. So Father, we pray today to you. We ask you to open our hearts and minds to be receptive to the truth of the gospel that is proclaimed through these words. We ask that we be receptive to what it is you're teaching us from these scriptures. Father, we pray that you would remove anything from us that would cause us to run astray, that would lead us to stumble, anything that would take us away from you, your will, and your word. Father, we also recognize that we are in a time where we are all suffering. We have dealt with heartbreak and pain. And we recognize that even as we're wrestling with these things, that you are a God who is near to the brokenhearted. So Father, continue to be near to us when we are broken and tired. Bind our wounds, heal our heart, so that we might rejoice in you, Father. Lord, we are grateful for you. And we pray that you bless us during this time. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin, as we've read this section of Scripture, we have to recognize that there are some different things that are taking place. And if you're taking notes, and I hope that you're taking notes, I want to make sure you have this first point as we begin to dive into God's Word. That our first point is that we see boldness from God on display here. Look with me again at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
Now, to get some context of just where we're at here, uh, here we've just continued the story we've seen over the last few weeks of Peter and John coming into the temple, performing this miraculous healing, and now they've been brought before the council after a night in jail, and they are standing before them, and they've given an account in the preceding verses over what Jesus has done and this risen Savior that they follow. And hearing this proclamation from Peter and John, the council is astonished. See, they are in awe at the boldness that these two men are putting on display. You see, their astonishment is really tied to their confusion. Because as they look at Peter and John, they're confused about where their confidence, their boldness, their assurance is coming from. They really, they're questioning, what is the source of their confidence? Why can't they stand before the religious and political elites, the leaders of the nation of Israel, and openly defy them by saying, we serve a risen Savior and you too bow down to Him? Well, as we see this, we, we have to recognize one element of their astonishment. We have to understand something about this culture they're in that I think will sound rather familiar to us, that we see elements of this play out in our culture today. You see, ancient Israel, like many places and times throughout history, was very class conscious. They were very aware of social standing and uh, what your heritage was and where you were from and all these things that we see today, right? In fact, in order to be considered a praiseworthy member of society, you really needed the proper credentials in that culture. Now, what does that mean? It means that you needed to go to the right schools. It means that you needed to be from the right families, right? You need to be from the right place. You needed to have the right job. Perhaps this rings familiar to not just ancient Israel, but to our modern culture, right? That so many of the people that our culture esteems and brings honor to today, they come from similar backgrounds. They've got the credentials that the world would say. They've gone to the right school. They've belonged to the right family. They have the proper job, right? They're on social media, whatever it may be, right? The world would say that there are certain things you must do to be considered honorable and praiseworthy. Now, as we look at this passage... The Sanhedrin, this council that's gathered together, they have those credentials. You see, they've gone to the right schools. They're from elite families. They have power and fame. They have wealth and prosperity. That they are people that the culture around them look at and go, I want to be like them when I grow up. These are the people that are going to be my heroes People didn't want to be firemen. People didn't want to be farmers. They wanted to be like the Sanhedrin. Now, that brings confidence and assurance for these people. But enters Peter and John, who are standing before the Sanhedrin, this elite of the elite, boldly, clearly, confidently proclaiming the good news of a risen Savior. You see, Peter have none of these things working for them, right? Peter and John are about as low class, as simple, as far from the elite as you can get. Where did they go to school? They didn't. They're uneducated. They're not trained anywhere. 
In fact, this phrase that we see, uh, uneducated and common, if we translate that into Hebrew, it has this context of people referring to people who are ignorant of the Torah or Jewish law. That when they say that they're uneducated and common, they're talking bad about them. They're making a snide remark saying, can you believe these guys? Who do they think they are? They don't have great jobs. They're fishermen. They're about as low class as you can get. In our culture, we talk about white-collar, blue-collar jobs, right? White-collar would be office-style jobs. Blue-collar, your traditional working-class job. They're below that, right? They're just trying to get by. They're from an undistinguished area. They're from Galilee. And that may not mean much to you. Even if I put a map up, you may not understand that. But they're from an area that leaves them with a distinctive accent. That when they speak, people go, you're from Galilee, aren't you? It's the same thing we have in the South, that when you hear someone's accent, you can go, are they from South Carolina? Are they from North Carolina? They have that weird Alabama language, right? Like, that you hear the accent and you go, I'm going to make a presupposition. I'm going to make a judgment about you because of where I think you're from. Regardless of all of these things that are working against them, the Sanhedrin, of course, are well aware of some of their background and experiences. They look at these men and, frankly, they're amazed that they would stand before them, the elite, with confidence and assurance. And that leads us to a natural question, right? It leads us to a natural question to ask, well, how would Peter and John be able to do this? How would they be able to stand before these men and proclaim with boldness that they serve a risen Savior? I mean, our equivalent would be standing before Congress and the president within our culture, uh, perhaps affirming before them that the only person that we seek to serve is God. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Now, this is made all the more striking because of the things that, that have been said about them that we've just referenced. They're true. They are uneducated and common. That they don't have the experience that they come from poor backgrounds, that they don't come from the right places. These are all true things about them, yet they stand before these men and clearly proclaim the risen Savior. How can they stand before the religious and political elite of their time and proclaim the good news of a risen Savior? Well, they can do so because they have a full grasp of the gospel and its implications. They have a full grasp of the gospel and its implications. You see, Peter and John understand something that the Sanhedrin does not. You see, what they understand is that they will never be good enough to earn anything but condemnation. The only thing that they contribute to their salvation is the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to pay the price of death upon the cross. You see, they recognize this reality that they have earned nothing but condemnation from their sins. You, they recognize that their poor backgrounds, these things that people would hold against them, they say that is meaningless before the Lord. You see, they know that ordinary men and women in this new era, this new kingdom that God has inaugurated with the Pentecost moment, with bringing the Spirit upon His people, they know that ordinary men and women can be saved, can be chosen, and can be gifted by God for His service. 
that it doesn't take a college degree, that it doesn't take a good job, it doesn't take a good family, that it takes nothing but the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you to serve Him. You see, they have confidence because of the one they have faith in, Jesus Christ. So they willingly, confidently stand before the religious rulers of their nation and they're proclaiming that they serve their risen Savior. I really, I need you to see this, the beauty that is here in the midst of this story. So there's beauty that can be found for you and I in the midst of this conversation, this study of Scripture. All of us, Every one of us, everyone that is in this room, that is listening online, we are exactly like Peter and John. We're just like them. We are people with imperfect past, right? We've committed sins. We have things that shame us. That I promise you that if I asked you to give me a list of your five most embarrassing moments, you could reel them off like that. Because we are well aware of who we are and the mistakes that we have made. We recognize that we probably haven't gone to the right schools. We recognize that most of us aren't from wealth or fame. We are simply ordinary, common people. Yet, because of our faith in Jesus, we have this power this capability to do extraordinary things in the name of Jesus. We have a power that dwells inside of us that gives us the ability as ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the name of King Jesus. You see, perhaps one of the most extraordinary things we can do as believers is to be gently, humbly bold about the one who has saved our souls. That we need to take note of this persecution here that they're experiencing. And let's be clear about what we're seeing. That what Peter and John are experiencing is persecution. That they are saying, I will follow Jesus. I'm on team Jesus, right? And what that does is that is bringing conflict. Because they have said, I will follow Jesus. And others say, that's a problem for me. You see, they have displayed courage proclaim the gospel. They've displayed kindness that is attractive to the, to the people around them. They live in such a way, they love in such a way, they serve in such a way that the people of Israel are looking in on Jerusalem and going, there is something that is attractive and compelling. This is why we see several times throughout the book of Acts that the Lord is adding to their number day by day. That what they are doing, the way they're living, the proclamation that they are putting out there of a risen Savior is compelling to the people that have gathered around them. You see, we recognize that here in this moment that Peter and John are living out what we see in the Beatitudes. Specifically, as we look at Matthew 5, recognize Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to be clear about something that we as Christians do sometimes. Sometimes we are persecuted because we're jerks. 
Sometimes we're persecuted because we say the right things in the wrong way. We're so bent on making sure that people know the way they're supposed to live that we have not had any dialogue and conversation about why they live the way they live. That we're so busy bringing condemnation upon the world that we've forgotten the fact that in John 3.16 that yes, he says that he sent his beloved son for those that will believe in him. They would have eternal life. And what does he say in 3.17? That he came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. You see, what Peter and John are experiencing here is they're experiencing persecution for righteousness' sake. They have lived in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And by doing so, that invites conflict from the world. You see, they're in direct opposition to the world's beliefs And rather than go beat them on the head with a hymnal, they've merely planted themselves in the middle of the road and said, this is the word of the Lord. As you're going on this journey of life, how may I serve you? How can I care for you? What is God doing in your life? You say they don't do this with hatred or evil in their heart. Rather, they do these things out of love and kindness. You see, in the middle of this conflict, they're simply speaking life-giving words about their Savior. They're being clear about the one that they serve. Now, as they do this, the gathered council is astounded. They can't believe this. And then they look to this man who's standing beside them and they go... We've got nothing to say. That not only are they proclaiming about this risen Savior, but they have healed this man. That this man was lying by one of the temple gates. That the Sanhedrin possibly passed by this man on a daily basis. And they go, yeah, that's him. Old broke leg, hanging out by the gate, beautiful gate. Can't walk, can't do anything. That's him. And I think Luke is trying to get us to see something here when he says that seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I think Luke's trying to get something across here because he could have just said the man that was healed is standing beside them. But James Montgomery Boyce points out something as we look at the Greek text here. He says that the the word for resurrection is anastasis. The word for resurrection is anastasis. The word for standing, the root word within that, is stasis. So when he says here that this man is standing here, he's pointing clear evidence to this man is not just standing here, but he has been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection because he has been redeemed to stand forth as a witness to the power and miracle work of Christ. You see, Luke didn't just casually put that in there. That he is making clear that the people who are reading this text, the people who would look at this afterwards would go, that man's not just standing there healed physically, that he has been healed spiritually. He has been redeemed and united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he stands there with Peter and John, not just as an accomplice, but as a fellow witness of the power and majesty of the risen Savior. We don't even know his name. 
Do you, did you catch that? We don't even know his name yet. He stands there mentioned in the same breath as these esteemed apostles, Peter and John. Just an ordinary man who's a recipient of extraordinary grace doing extraordinary things on behalf of the name of Jesus. You see, to follow Jesus, we must display this boldness from God. We must put this boldness on display for the world to see. And in doing so, we invite a response from the world. And that's our next point, the world's response. Because we're going to clearly see what the world wants to do when you stand before them and say, I follow Jesus. Look at verse 15 with me. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here we see the world's response. They can't deny the fact that this man who has been broken has now been redeemed and resurrected stands before them. They cannot deny that these ordinary, uneducated men are standing before them contrary to their will and desire. As they're looking at this, they've got questions and concerns, frankly. They're wondering what they need to do about this. They see this miracle in front of them, and what they do, we see in verse 16. I think it's astounding here that we look at verse 16, we recognize that they are not denying the power and majesty of the miracle that they're seeing. They fully assent to the fact that this man is standing here and they say a notable sign has occurred. They say we recognize a miracle has happened. What we cannot tolerate is that Jesus gets credit for this miracle. You see, I think this tells us something about sin, about our sinful hearts, about sin in the world, about unrepentant people, frankly. You see, I think what it shows us is that unbelief, because of our sin, is both hostile and irrational when it looks at the gospel. I mean, just let's call it like it is, right? Like these are the religious elite, the Sanhedrin. They've gone to the best schools. They've got the best education. They've got what are essentially doctorates in Jewish law and Hebrew. Like they know their stuff. These were the same men that saw Jesus crucified, that he was crucified because of their sinful action. These are the same men who condemned him and combated him his entire time. These are the same men who were at the crucifixion. So I want to paint this picture that these men have experienced a great deal. They've been around these things, this man called Jesus. And we're making an assumption that they're intelligent men, right? They speak a couple of languages, they're experts in their field, right? We would say they're intelligent men. And they see this miracle, this miraculous moment. And their response is not to say, well, this can't be true. They couldn't have performed a miracle. There is no power to be found here. This man isn't standing and healed. There's no way that this happened. No, 
Their discussion is perhaps best summarized as, yep, a miracle happened. How do we keep others from hearing about this miracle? We've got to recognize something about sin, about people who do not believe in Jesus. We can call them unrepentant people, unregenerate people, people who are lost in their sin and shame. Unrepentant people are naturally antagonistic to the gospel. That they will do anything to deny the power and majesty of the name of Jesus. There is no way to rationalize the things of Christ before a non-believer. They will see things like this, these miracles, clear evidence of God and His providential grace, and they reject the gospel out of principle. Simply saying, of course that happened, but Jesus couldn't have done this. The problem here that we see within their hearts within our hearts as sinful people, isn't a problem with the miracle. It's not even a problem with the gospel, frankly. You see, the root problem that we have as sinful people, and this is us as believers who struggle with sin, this is people who don't believe in Jesus as they're lost in their sin, the root problem we have is what Jesus is proclaimed about in 4.12. Just a few verses earlier. Peter says these words as he's explaining what he's doing here. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see the problem that the Sanhedrin has with Jesus. The problem that we and our sinfulness have with Jesus The problem that unrepentant people have with Jesus is not the gospel message, is not the religious requirements. It is that there is no other name that they must be saved by. You see, the problem we have with this message is not that we don't think it's true, but it's that we don't want to submit to its authority. Because what that requires of of us is to lay down our life and take up our cross. What that requires from you and I is to give up our hopes, our dreams, and desires and to say, Jesus, my life is a blank check before you. Fill it out with whatever you need. Send me wherever you'll go. take me. Give of me whatever you'll desire to be given, Lord. It is yours and yours alone. As we look at her culture, We see so many parallels to ancient Israel. And one of the things that is so contrary to our culture today is to give up your hopes, your dreams, your desires so that you could have Jesus and Jesus alone. Frankly, if we're honest with one another, we understand their concern about this message. We understand their concern about this message spreading further even. That if we're being honest, we get their problems and concerns with this. You know, why are they concerned about it, right? Well, maybe they feel that they're threatened about challenges coming to their popularity, right? If Jesus, who isn't even here on earth, by the way, right, is able to perform miracles, and these guys who are standing before you can't do anything, 
well, they probably won't be very popular much longer. Maybe they're concerned about the fact that Jesus was crucified because they drove it forward, and he's now becoming more popular within the Hebrew culture. Maybe they have some theological issues with this. The Sanhedrin does not believe in the resurrection, in a bodily resurrection. And to assent and affirm that Jesus is who he says he is, that means they've got to say that their entire theological system is wrong. They've got to say that everything I think I know about the Bible is wrong because Jesus, who wrote it, who is the living word, says differently. I, I suggest that all of these are perhaps true, but I think the, the ma- na- true nature of this matter is that they find their root in an unrepentant heart that is desperate to keep its power and authority intact. Like a wounded animal, their pride swells up and leads them to reject this olive branch that is put out before them by Jesus through the gospel. They have an opportunity to receive this grace and to lay down their life, to give up everything and take up the cross of Jesus and have it all because they follow him. And they reject it, saying that the temporary things of this world mean more to me than all of eternity. So the response is to just simply tell Peter and John to hush. The response is to tell them to just be quiet. And the truth is that that's all they could do because they recognize they have nothing to charge them with. In fact, it's even questionable if the Sanhedrin could really punish them. As we see later in the book of Acts, that the excuse they give when Christians start to be martyred is, well, the crowd just got out of hand. It was a mob. Did you guys not see how crazy they got? Who are we as these innocent men? Who are we to stop them? Nonetheless, they decide to tell Peter and John with a former warning to cease proclaiming the name of Jesus. You can just picture this. They've got on their formal robes, serious face. They bring Peter and John in and they say, You gentlemen are to stop talking about this risen Savior. That you're not to say anything at all about the name of Jesus. And we get to the climax of this story. We see the church empowered in the last few verses. Look with me and hear the answer that Peter and John provide. See, in verse 19 they say, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we hit the dramatic climax of the story. Peter and John are are faced with a choice, frankly. You see, they can give the religious leaders what they want and just stop talking about the name of Jesus. To do so would probably save them a great deal of pain and suffering and heartbreak. It would probably, frankly, make their lives simple. They can go back to fishing and just spending some time out on the lake and things are good, right? 
No more conflict. Or they can choose to stand against the governing authorities, those who have all the power in their culture, all the wealth, fame, notoriety, everything. And they can keep sharing this message of the resurrected Savior. Frankly, either choice will come with a high cost, right? That to do either one, to either stop talking about Jesus or to keep proclaiming Him, essentially they're going to be cut off from everything they know, everything they have, no matter what. On either side, they're going to lose something. But they knew, they knew that they could never obey this command. And they clearly proclaimed their answer to the Sanhedrin to be no. Can you imagine the weight that they feel? I reference this is like standing before Congress and the president and all power in the culture is invested in them in this scenario. And you stand before them when they tell you to cease talking about Jesus. And your answer before these people who have all the power is to say, no, you can decide what is right before the Lord for you to do. But as for us, we will proclaim the name of Jesus in all that we say and do. You see, they've committed to choosing Jesus and their obedience to Him over the commands of any religious or political system. If we're honest with one another, if we're trying to put ourselves in their shoes, if we're being honest about our internal dialogue right now, I think most of us are saying, well, I would do the same thing, right? I would do the same thing. I'd be happy to do so. But the truth is, if we're honest with one another, is that these choices, these things we say we would do, They're always easy to make in the midst of conflict and peace. It's easy to say that you would fight for your Savior when you're not at war. It's easy in a time of peace and comfort to say, of course I would say nothing else. You see, these choices become a challenge in the middle of real persecution. You see, we're seeing this play out in Afghanistan right now with the global church. You see, the reality is right now, a few thousand miles around the globe, that we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are choosing, who are making a conscious decision to choose if they will continue to boldly follow Jesus or if they'll recant their faith and return to Islam. And in the midst of that, as we sit here in comfort, in peace, in air conditioning, we say, of course, we would risk our lives for a risen Savior. Yet the truth of it is, is that some of our brothers and sisters have already become martyrs before the Lord and have already been killed for their faith. Others are known to be Christians and have received warnings and letters and messages saying, we know who you are. We know who it is you follow. And we are coming for you. You see, with all that they have to risk, at minimum their jobs, 
their homes. As we start to get more serious things, their families, their lives. It would be easy and rational to publicly recant their faith, right? To simply stand before these Islamic extremists and to say, of course I don't believe in this Jesus anymore. In fact, we would really probably say that we understand that they would publicly say that, but privately, they're on Team Jesus, right? We would say even, I dare say, that's reasonable, right? Not only is the church in Afghanistan standing firm before this persecution, but they are growing in the midst of the reality that people are dying for their faith. People are publicly repenting of their sin and being baptized. The reality of human nature, as we recognize this, is that who we are, we're about ourselves. That human nature is not rooted in risk like this. Only something that is otherworldly, something that is out of this world, as foreign to us as we can imagine, could move us, could empower us as people to live and risk all for the name of someone else. You see, it's this commitment to live and risk all for the name and honor of King Jesus that the gospel empowers us to perform. Ask yourself what it is that you must risk to see the name of Jesus exalted. Truly, what is it that we risk? We live in peace and comfort. What will it take from you and I to see the name of Jesus go forth through the North Charleston area, through South Carolina, through the United States? What will it take from us to see the gospel go forth? We sit in the midst of, midst of comfort and prosperity and we recognize the truth that it will probably not cost us our life to follow Jesus here in this country. Yet, it will cost something. Will it be your comfort? Will it be your prosperity? Will it be your reputation? Will it be your preferences? What will it take for the name of Jesus to be made known on every corner in this city? You see, it's very easy for us who are not risking our lives to follow Jesus and gather together to say, of course we would risk our lives. The truth is that it's hard to give up things that are actually at risk. It's hard for us to say we would risk our reputation, our comfort, our peace and prosperity, our preferences, so that Jesus' name would be made known. What we see out of the council's response, it, it truly it shows us that they were unwilling to risk their power and authority to follow Jesus. You see, they released Peter and John because they found it too hard to give up their comfort, their reputation, and preferences. Their fate, like all other unbelievers, 
is eternal separation from God because of that choice. Because they've said these temporary things of this world that bring satisfaction and honor to me, these things are worth all of eternity. But this didn't have to be their destiny. There is a way out. There's a way for you and I to gain all of eternity if we would just lay down our life here. If we would give of our preferences and desires, our comfort and peace. If we would commit to live and risk all for the name of King Jesus. We can have all of eternity. And in the midst of this life, where things are truly at risk, we can rejoice in the presence and the comfort and assurance that the Lord is with us. And so I simply ask you this question. What is eternity worth to you? What is eternity worth to you? Because as we look at these realities, we recognize that no one would willingly choose hell and say, that's a better fate than being united with God. And to be united with God for all eternity, all that it requires is for us to lay down ourselves, to give our lives, and to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And if we do so, we have eternity. And so I simply ask you, what is eternity worth to you? For me, it was worth laying down my preferences, my desires, my need to be God so that I could find God. My needs and desires to be righteous so that I could find righteousness. It required me to lay down my sin and my shame at the foot of the cross so the one who could actually bear that weight would bear that burden for me. So that I might experience eternity and union with Christ. It is my hope and prayer is that you would say that's what eternity is worth. Here in the next few minutes we're going to go into a time of just silent prayer and reflection. That if you're here this is an opportunity for you to tell God precisely what you think eternity is worth. That you'll have a few moments of quiet where you and the Lord can go back and forth. After a few moments, I will lead us in a corporate prayer. And our worship team will lead us to sing a song that is titled, Yes, I Will. Where we're going to clearly proclaim that we'll praise God in the midst of good times and bad. That we will choose to praise because He is good. And he is worthy of all honor and praise. If you're here and you're wrestling with what eternity is worth, I'd love to speak to you and simply hear what it is you're wrestling with, your struggles, your concerns. If you're watching online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact. You can let us know what you're dealing with, you're wrestling with, your concerns and struggles so that we can intercede before the Lord on your behalf. All I simply ask in this time is that you look to God 
and very humbly and openly tell him precisely what eternity is worth. For me, it was worth laying down my life and taking up the cross of Jesus. I pray that that is your answer as well. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you now because you tell us that your yoke is light and your burden is easy. We cling to that truth in times of difficulty and distress, but here and now we come before you proclaiming this because this is what we receive out of offering our life to you. That when we give up our lives, and we take up the cross, the burden that we carry is one that is light and easy. One that calls us to follow you for the rest of our days. One that gives us assurance and confidence that we will win because you sit on the throne. Father, what a beautiful offering you've put before us. Lord, I pray that we eagerly partake And what you've given us. That we're eager to receive this gift, Lord. That we call out to you, repenting of our sins, turning away from our sin and shame, and taking the free gift of grace that is given us from you, Father. Because you and your majesty and your glory sent Jesus to die the death that we deserved to be risen from the grave, to show us that He has power over life and death so that we might, if we humbly come before You, confessing our sins, receive eternal unity with You, Father. Lord, what a gift. What a gift. Father, now as we proclaim the goodness of God through song, may You Allow the Spirit to change our hearts, to make us receptive to the truth and power of the gospel, to let us boldly, clearly sing of choosing to praise in the midst of the storm, of choosing you, Father, of saying that you are worthy of the blank check and we want you, Lord. Father, would you bless each and every one of us with your presence. Let us be aware of what it is you're doing in our hearts and minds that you may transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we would be focused on you and your will, Lord. Father, may we exalt you and we put you above all else in this time. We pray that you bless us, Lord. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.